Stanley. Thank you, John, and welcome to, uh, to everyone. It's my very pleasant uh, duty to introduce Jennifer Nadelsky, uh, who will give the, uh, give the next uh, talk. Um, Jenny and I have known one another a long time now, um, because uh, when she was doing her PhD in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, I was teaching in the law school and in the history department uh, there, and I was the uh, third uh, in a succession of people who directed her uh, quite wonderful uh, dissertation. And it's a it's, it's sort of a sad, happy story because uh, my two predecessors passed away before Jenny um, finished her dissertation. And made it just. <laughs> When I, when I agreed to take this on, she points out that one of them actually left the university, but he did die <clears throat> not long after. Uh, I asked her whether uh, she could immunize me from this fate, and she has, and here I am. Uh, but she, she did a brilliant dissertation there, as she uh, had been a brilliant undergraduate at the University of Rochester where she graduated with highest distinction uh, a little bit before that. And uh, she spent some time in Canada at uh, Dalhousie University and then came here um, as an assistant professor. And she was here for five or six years in the, uh, in the early 80s when it was a pleasure to be a colleague of hers. And now, uh, then at that point, she and uh, another um, colleague, Joe Cairns, whom she had the wit to marry, have moved up to the University of Toronto, where uh, Jenny is a professor of, uh, of law. She's in the law uh, faculty, but of political science and women's studies as well. Joe is in the political science uh, faculty. And the dissertation that I referred to um, was published subsequently as a book called Private Property and the Limits of American Constitutionalism, the Madisonian Framework, and its legacy, published by Chicago in 1990. And she has a, uh, a forthcoming book now. Actually, she has three forthcoming books uh, at the moment. One uh, that's, I think, most imminent is called Judgment, Imagination, and Politics, Themes from Kant and Arendt, who was, Hannah Arendt was one of my predecessors in this string that I mentioned, which is an uh, addition that she's bringing out. But she's also working on a book called Law, Autonomy, and the Relational Self, A Feminist Re-Envisioning of the Foundations of Law. And I'm told by this sheet, a year after that, a book called Human Rights and Judgment, a relational uh, approach. So she's in a very uh, relational mode these days. And uh, it's, a wonder, it's wonderful to have her here for this. Uh, let me say just briefly that um, for those of us who are on the planning committee and been working on this conference for a year, one always hopes that the people one invites will do well and that the whole program will cohere. Usually that doesn't happen. And I can only speak for uh, ha having heard two so far. This one is better uh, than we had hoped. <laughs> I'm really thrilled, and I know that Jenny is going to keep the momentum uh, going. It's, it's just wonderful having uh, so many terrific people here and focusing so narrowly on an important theme. That doesn't happen too often. So it, it really is wonderful. And last night, uh, the conference, of course, is also has its surprises. Um, 
we we hadn't thought of strong themes really for it, but it turns out there is a theme here, uh, and it's that uh, Madison is the founder of a whole lot of things we hadn't thought about um, before. We just discovered that he was the founder of game theory. We know all along, as you will hear this afternoon, uh, that he was the founder of the CIA. And Gordon Wood told us that he was really the founder uh, of a non-existent problem, uh, Das Madison problem. Uh, and I guess that what I have to say now is uh, that we could think of Jenny's earlier work, I don't know what you will say today, uh, as a different uh, sort of take on uh, Das Madison problem. Um, and which might be called actually Das Beard problem, uh, because the, the problem that she addressed in her first book was, was James Madison a lackey of the emerging capitalist class in post-revolutionary America? And who knows what you'll say today. <laughs> Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, because as Stan told you, I live in a law faculty and political science department. I don't usually get to hang out with historians, and it's wonderful to have gathered here together all the people whose work I've admired and Madison. And it's a pleasure, too, for me to turn my mind back to Madison after all these years, because I found as I worked with him and listening to, to Jack this morning, he was a thinker who I always learned something from engaging with. Often I was trying to figure out why I thought he was wrong, um, what, why I disagreed with him, but it always helped me to advance my own thinking, to try to work through his ideas. And so what I'm going to try to do for you today is go back briefly to some of the arguments that I made in my book to show you how they set the stage for my thinking about what Madison has to tell us about contemporary problems of constitutionalism and equality. And just to continue Stanley's theme, you will now learn that Madison was also the founder of Canadian and South African constitutionalism. So I've, I have added a, a subtitle to the title that you see before you on your program, which is called Taking Up Madison's Challenge. James Madison offered his fellow Federalists a brilliant articulation of what he saw as the central problem of Republican government. How to provide equal protection for the rights of persons, of property, and participation. The challenge he set for himself was to find a truly Republican solution to this Republican problem, some versions of which you've already had hinted at earlier. Or to use more contemporary language, to find democratic solutions to the potential for democratic injustice. Today I want to look at both the insights and the limitations of his formulation and to argue that although he and the Constitution he helped design did not meet his own challenge, we should take it up. I'll begin with a discussion of how he saw this inherent Republican problem and some of the distortions that arose from the central role of property in his formulation. I'll only gesture at what in some ways is his most important contribution, the institutional solutions he proposed and his careful inquiry into why and how he thought the institutions would work. Instead, I'll turn after the introduction to this the Republican problem in my second section to one of the little known dimensions of his ideas, his rejection of judicial review. 
and how I think it can help us think about alternative visions of constitutionalism, alternatives to the vision which has emerged in the United States. And I'll offer the examples of Canada and South Africa as models of constitutionalism that have actually worked out Madison's preliminary vision. In the third section, I'll turn to the issues of participation and equality as a way of assessing how well our republic has met Madison's challenge. And since the Supreme Court has come to be, as Madison never wished it to be, the primary means of securing rights, I'll offer a brief comparative perspective on how American jurisprudence is handling the issue of equality. I'll close with a brief summary of why we should take Madison's aspirations seriously and why we should take up the challenge he offers to all of us. So first, protecting rights and the Republican problem. Of course, now it's a commonplace that democracies can threaten rights. But at the time of the American Revolution, the focus was on the claim that rights could not be secure without representation. It thus came as a shock and a challenge to the foundations of Republican government, you've heard some of the citations earlier, to find that the duly elected representatives in state governments were passing debtor relief laws and issuing depreciating currency that to men like Madison were as clearly violations of property rights as the theft of a horse. It was becoming increasingly clear that representation itself could not be the solution to the problem of governmental tyranny. It was Madison who offered the most thoughtful formulation of the basic problem that Republican government posed for his fellow Federalists. Good government must be able to protect the rights of persons and the rights of property. In Republican government, those two objectives were in tension with one another because of a third category of rights, the right of all men to be governed only by those laws to which they consent. Of course, today we would qualify his statement as applying only to free men or to white men. The problem was that if political rights were granted equally to all, the rights of persons and the rights of property would not be equally protected. The property could be relied upon to respect the rights of persons in which they also had an interest, but the rights of property would be at risk whenever the sheer numerical advantage of the poor was translated into political power through equal political rights, because the propertyless had no corresponding interest in the rights of property. And the threat in America was particularly insidious because it took those indirect forms, such as depreciating currency rather than direct expropriation. No one denied that property was a basic right, but the propertyless majority would, nevertheless, demand measures that destroyed the security of property. The problem of providing equal protection for the rights of persons and the rights of property in a manner consistent with Republican principles was, Madison said, the most difficult of all political problems. Now, the source of this problem was, of course, the inequality of property, which he presumed to be the natural outcome of freedom and property. Now, the protection of property was particularly important for many reasons, but it also pointed to the wider problem. Democratic majorities might think it in their interest to pass laws that violated the rights of others. Madison used the person's property participation dilemma as a paradigm of this larger problem. And he devoted his constitution-making to trying to find ways to find a truly Republican solution to this inherent Republican problem. That is, he wanted to find a way to secure the rights of all without sacrificing the Republican principle of men's right to participate in the making of the laws that would bind them. Madison's conceptualization of the problem of democratic tyranny has been an enduring gift to American politics and political thought. 
and indeed to democratic theory everywhere. And his insights into how to solve it, spelled out in the Federalist Papers, are still read today. But the institutional solutions he and his fellow framers came up with did not meet his own compelling challenge. For Madison, the solution that he ultimately crafted rested on a conceptual hierarchy he developed, and that is civil over political rights. Now, civil rights in his terms included both the rights of persons and property. Political rights, the rights to participate, the rights to, uh, have, for, to representation, to have a voice in the laws that would bind you, were, he said, means to the higher end of protecting the civil rights. And as means only, it didn't, they didn't have intrinsic value. So if it was necessary to compromise the means to secure the end, the protection of rights, of civil rights, that wouldn't, in the end, involve a compromise of principle. And in my view, this conceptual hierarchy that he created ultimately justified containing the political power and efficacy of the people, not through crude mechanisms like property qualifications for voting or for office, but a careful structuring of institutions that would bring men of substance, responsibility, and property into government. As you heard last night, men like himself, men from Princeton, Harvard, people who could be relied on to make the right judgments. And, of course, it was helpful to have a few key protections against democratic excess at the state level, such as the contract clause. And again, we've heard that he would have liked a national veto, but that didn't come to pass. And these are some of the important institutional details that I'm not going to go into here. At the most general level, Madison's concern with the inherent vulnerability of property led to his insight into the vulnerability of all rights in a democracy. But the focus on property also led to a distortion of this key problem of democratic government. Property is a right that requires collective recognition and enforcement. And in part for that reason, property becomes a compelling yet complex symbol of the potential conflict between the rights of the individual and the power of the collective formed through the state. Property requires the involvement of the collective for definition and defense, the structuring of property law, and it's thus peculiarly vulnerable to collective power. At the same time that one of the basic purposes of property is to provide a shield for the individual against the intrusions of the collective. Property defines what the society or its representatives, the state, cannot touch in the ordinary course of things. It defines a sphere in which we can act largely unconstrained by collective preferences. But the definition and protection of that sphere must reside with the collective itself, the government that structures property laws. Property thus captures the essence of the problem of self-limiting government. Government has to create its own boundaries to its power. But as I say, property also distorts this inevitable problem of how to construct self-limiting government. The tension between the individual and the collective is not inevitably about inequality and domination. The protection of unequal property is. In accepting vast economic inequality as a given and the contours of property rights as obvious, Madison was in fact focusing on protecting the rich from the poor, not individuals or minorities from the collective of which they are a part. 
Madison's formulation turned attention away from the real problem, which is fostering the ongoing collective formulation of rights in a political culture that respects both democratic decision-making and individual freedom and recognizes the need to sustain the in inevitable tension between them, between individual rights and democratic decision-making. In my view, Madison recognized this tension. In fact, it's part of his brilliance to see its inevitability. But he was too focused on the rights protection side of it. He was preoccupied with insulating property from democratic decision-making. As a result, he saw the ongoing reformulation of property rights as a danger to avoid, not as a basic social process in which the values of both democracy and individual rights must be integrated. Madison transformed a widespread fear about threats to property into a sophisticated analysis of the inherent problem of majority oppression. But in doing so, he also transformed this general problem into a question of how to contain the power of the people. He gave us a language, a conceptual framework for understanding the problems of democracy, in which, however, the values and potential of democracy became submerged. Perhaps the clearest result was that public participation in politics was not itself an objective for Madison and his fellow Federalists. Indeed, in the, in the 1790s, you, here you can find private correspondence between the Federalists despairing. They were counting on the gentlemen of substance and property to want to enter public life. They expected other people to focus on their own private concerns, on in economic involvement, but they expected the right sort of people to go into public life, and they were dismayed to find that not enough of them were, that many of that group also were more engaged with the daily tasks of commerce. Despite Madison's bold formulation of the challenge of equally protecting the rights of persons, property, and participation, he accepted that at some level it wasn't really possible. And it was not possible because the inequality of property itself had to be protected. And indeed, of course, it was not until the Civil War amendments that equality became an explicit constitutional value. And I think one might wonder whether the capacity to think deeply about the issues of equality was blocked as long as the property to be protected included ownership of human beings. When trying to understand Madison and his legacy, it's important to recognize the ways his treating property as the paradigm for protecting rights distorted his, and to some extent our, understanding of the problem, and led to an institutionalized neglect of the issue of political participation. But it's equally important to recognize that Madison continued to struggle with his own challenge, and he was not willing to institutionalize a simple hierarchy of rights, even property rights, over democracy. The Constitution of 1787 left the tensions of persons, property, and participation skewed, in my view, but open. With the rise of judicial review, however, the conceptual hierarchy of civil over political rights crystallized into a kind of institutional hierarchy. And it is here that I want to turn to the issues of constitutionalism. Now, most people who are not close students of Madison don't know that he was opposed to protecting rights by setting up judges as the final word over the considered will of the legislature. At the federal convention, he had an unwieldy plan of a council of revision that would include both the executive and judges. Every law would be submitted to both the executive 
and the judges. And probably for good reasons, it never gained support. He kept coming back to it over and over again in the convention, and he could never garner much interest for it. But, and as I say, probably for good reasons. But what was lost with this idea of Madison's was a vision of how to protect rights against democratic excess that is very different from what emerged as the American form of judicial review. His idea was that all laws should be submitted both to the executive and to the supreme judiciary. And if one of those, if either of them should object to the law, two-thirds of the House would then have to repass it. It would serve as a a partial veto that could be passed by two-thirds of the House. If both the executive and the judges opposed the law, then it would take three-quarters of the House to overrule the objections. And then later on, when he was thinking about the Virginia Constitution, um, he refined this scheme by adding that if either or both, the executive or judiciary, protest against a bill as violating the Constitution, so in the first one, you don't have to say why you oppose it. But if the objection to the law is that the law violates the Constitution, he says, let it moreover be suspended, notwithstanding the overruling proportion of the assembly. So even if they get the two-thirds or the three-quarters, the law will be overruled until there shall have been a subsequent election of the House of Delegates, and then a repassage of the bill by two-thirds or three-quarters of both houses, as the case may be. And he concluded this proposal by saying, it should not be allowed the judges or the executive to pronounce a law thus enacted unconstitutional and invalid. Now, I see this as an early insight into a model of constitutionalism I call a dialogue of democratic accountability. Rather than what the phrase which has become famous from Ronald Dworkin, rather than a model of constitution in which rights are trumps to be decisively played by the court. Madison wanted a means of holding the legislature accountable to the core values of the constitution. There should be a public official statement that a law the legislature had duly passed was inconsistent with those values. And then the electorate would be given time to reconsider until the next election. And if they still returned to office representatives who would vote in overwhelming numbers for the impugned law, then it was not for the judges or the executive to override their considered judgment. So that this was really an aim at democratic excess, a failure to think through an issue seriously. But if you could see that the electorate had turned its mind, because there had been a subsequent election in which one assumed that these issues would be debated, if under those circumstances the considered judgment of the electorate and their representatives was to pass that law by overwhelming numbers, then the final word should lie with them and not with judges. Now, Canada has its own version of such a notwithstanding clause. In fact, that's what it's called. As some of you may know, in 1982, the Canadian Constitution added a Charter of Rights, something like our Bill of Rights. For the first time, 
which formally gave judges the power of judicial review over rights as opposed to federalism. In the past, all of the exercise of judicial review had taken place around the issues of federalism. And they had found ways sometimes of protecting rights via that vehicle. But this was the introduction of a charter of rights as such. But in order to get all the provinces to agree, and again, probably many of you will know that although the formal structure of the Canadian Constitution has a much more powerful federal government than the formal structure of the United States Constitution, in practice it is the reverse. The provinces have a great deal more power in Canada than the states do here vis-à-vis the federal government. So it was an important compromise for some of the provinces, all of whom had to sign on to the creation of this new part of the Constitution, that they add what is called the override or the notwithstanding clause. And this clause, Section 33, permits Parliament or provincial legislatures to declare that a law shall operate notwithstanding certain sections of the Charter. So fundamental freedoms, religion, expression, association, assembly, and legal rights can be overridden by the legislatures, not democratic rights, voting, and so on, mobility rights, or language rights. The effect of such a declaration, that is, if, if a legislature decides to say this, they pass a law and they explicitly say, this law shall go into effect notwithstanding the freedom of speech provision of the Charter, such a declaration is limited to a maximum of five years, which is roughly tied to the life of a parliament. Thus, it's sort of like a reverse of Madison's plan. The decision to renew an override would come before a newly elected legislature. And again, the presumption would be it would have been debated. The notwithstanding clause has, in fact, very rarely been invoked. Some uh, politicians, uh, the former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, have publicly announced that their government wouldn't use it. It's been used by Quebec in a complicated way I won't go into at the moment. But in principle, this idea that you can have uh, a time-limited override, such that there'll be a new election, invites a dialogue between courts, legislatures, and citizens. The final word remains in the hands of duly elected representatives, the legislatures. And thus, according to some, it makes the Charter of Rights consistent with parliamentary sovereignty, the tradition in Canada. But, of course, presumably, there's a political cost to be paid for invoking the notwithstanding clause. The legislature has to explicitly announce its intention to violate the Constitution, or at least that it intends the law to be in effect, even if a court were to find it in violation. And in ways similar to Madison's model, the expectation is that the contested law will be a matter of public debate in ensuing elections. Now, Canada also has another means of, of inviting dialogue that puts it in sharp contrast with the American model. Section 1 guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in the Charter, quote, subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So that it's built into the statement of the Constitution that some balances, rights against rights, public good against rights, is intrinsic to the meaning of those rights. Now, my experience, um, I was still teaching at Princeton uh, after 1982, 
trying to tell American students about this emerging form of constitutionalism in Canada is that Americans are so wedded to the form of constitutionalism that has evolved around American-style judicial review that when they hear about the combination of Section 1 and the override, they conclude that Canadians don't really have constitutional rights, since those rights do not simply operate as trumps. But Section 1 makes it possible, for example, to say that libel laws or laws against shouting fire in a crowded theater or, in Canada, some law against hate speech are interferences with free speech, not to pretend that whatever the interferences are, if you think they're justified, they don't count as interferences. You call them interferences, and then you explicitly articulate the justification. That's what Section 1 does for the structure of the jurisprudence. The inevitable balancing of rights can be explicitly articulated. As it has developed, a great deal of Canadian constitutional jurisprudence turns on arguments about what kinds of limits are justifiable in a free and democratic society. Some of the dialogue is internal to courts and the legal community, but legislatures also know that they may be called upon to articulate justifications for limitations, and thus they consider doing so in advance. Sometimes you can see this in the preambles of law, sometimes in the public discussion. The South African Constitution also has what it calls a limitations clause, which is more elaborate than the Canadian Section 1. It reads in part that the rights entrenched in the Constitution may be limited provided that such limitation is reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society based on freedom and equality and shall not negate the essential content of the right in question. These clauses invite an open and explicit inquiry into the context and competing values that are always at stake in rights interpretation. While Madison had a sense of the possibility of institutional dialogue in this preliminary picture he formed, of calling on citizens to think twice about laws that might violate rights, rather than simply trying to prevent them from passing such laws, he showed little sense of the need for institutional inquiry into the meaning of rights. Of course, his very insight into the nature of property's vulnerability grew out of the fact that the legitimate legal meaning of property was contested. And he spent a great deal of energy trying, without much success, to educate his fellow citizens to see that debtor relief laws and depreciating currency amounted to violations of property rights. Nevertheless, he seemed confident that he knew, and men of substance would know, what property rights really were. Today, we can look back at 200 years of rights interpretation and see the shifts in the meaning, not just of property, but of core values like equality. Even if there are deep, immutable truths that underlie the core values that we try to capture in constitutional rights, most people today, I think, recognize that there is always a challenge of how to interpret them, how to institutionalize such core values in the form of legal rights. It's rarely self-evident what will give practical effect to a core value in a given context, and these contexts shift. As a result, we can now see that those who defend rights, who we think of as the courts conventionally, are also empowered to define those rights. And then we have to ask the question somewhat differently of who should have such authority. And what should their relationship be to other bodies, legislatures in particular, whose job it also is to implement, define, 
and defend rights. That is, if you just ask yourself who should defend rights, as if the meaning of those rights were not itself subject to the problem of definition, then it's easier to say, well, judges can defend rights against democratic incursion. But if you acknowledge that the meaning of those rights is itself a collective project, then the issue of who should do that becomes more complicated in my view. And it's in this context that we can see the imaginative alternatives emerging to American-style judicial review as efforts to develop Madison's preliminary efforts at structuring a dialogue of democratic accountability. These are different ways of trying to hold democratic decision-making accountable to the deepest values of the society, while trying to ensure that those values are defined, articulated, and defended in ways that are themselves democratically justifiable. At the same time that we can see contemporary constitutionalism outside the U.S. as moving Madison's vision further, we can see the continued value of the challenge he set for himself of protecting persons, property, and participation. Perhaps this is nowhere so poignantly clear as South Africa. They have self-consciously set about to create a culture of rights and to foster a climate of active democratic participation. Their voter turnout rate is about 85%. And they're committed to protecting the property of all, the squatters in the townships and the investors in corporate capital. And they want to find a way to give real meaning to the equal protection of the rights of persons in the face of vast economic and social inequality that's not going to go away overnight. Similarly, I think Madison's formulation helps us to think about the struggles in the former East Bloc countries. They might also be seen as trying to create genuine democracy in which the rights of property are secure enough for the economy to function while securing the social and economic rights that many see as the foundation for true equality. Finally, I think Madison's challenge reminds us not to make the mistake one can see in an important strain of contemporary constitutional theory. And that is to treat democracy as the only value presuming that all the other rights we care about can be derived from equality. For myself, I think the clearest uh, way of seeing this is to see the odd distortions that happen. It's easy to say that freedom of speech is essential for democracy. It's therefore a right which really comes from the commitment to uh, democracy. But if you think about freedom of conscience, um, freedom of religion, I think it distorts why we care about that value, to say that the reason we care about it is that it's important for democracy. Of course, it is important for democracy, but that, that does not exhaust the value of that right. So that we see, as Madison did, that there are rights whose importance to us comes independently from the importance we attribute to democracy. And that there's very often a tension between the two. And of course, as I say, Madison pointed to that tension, and although I think he miscast the tension in various ways, he was right in his instinct to maintain it. Madison overemphasized, as I said, the right side and neglected democracy, but it will not help us to reverse that error, to move in this modern world to focus exclusively on democracy. Optimal forms of constitutionalism will keep the tension alive as Madison tried to. 
So I want to turn now from the insights and limitations of Madison's understanding of constitutionalism to see his legacy, to look at his legacy in terms of equality, which I see as both the heart of his challenge and its manifest failure. As I've said, Madison did not want to use judicial review as the primary mechanism for responding to the inherent vulnerability of rights in a democracy. But of course, American constitutionalism via judicial review is what has become famous throughout the world as the solution to majority tyranny. And it's particularly famous around issues of equality. Brown versus Board of Education is a worldwide symbol of the courts protecting the rights of a minority from unjust laws. And it's not Madison's now arcane examples of depreciating currency, but Brown that students everywhere know as demonstrating Madison's insight that duly elected democratic legislatures can use their authority to violate the rights of others when they see it to be in their interest. And it's the Supreme Court, not Madison's carefully designed structure of federal institutions that is the hero of the story. In a similar vein, the American Supreme Court is most infamous for its effort to block the equality-promoting legislation of the New Deal during the Lochner era. This, too, stands as a worldwide symbol anywhere in the world where people talk about constitutionalism, a symbol of what courts should not do. Now, however imprecise the popular understanding of this Lochner era and what its problems were, I think everyone gets the basic point that the individualistic freedom of contract analysis provided an inappropriate ground to strike down legislation aimed at power imbalances that kept wages low and hours long. So now, where do Madison's insights point us in thinking about equality today? And how is the American Supreme Court that has become the symbol of protection against democratic injustice handling the issues of equality today? To put these questions in more Madisonian terms, let us remember that he saw the structure of institutions as the key to the security of rights, to stability, to patterns of participation, to the basic capacity of a country to live out its core values. At the turn of the millennium, what have our structures brought us? And since judicial review is now a central part of that structure, how are the courts doing in response to the problems of equality that the structures generate. First, of course, we have to acknowledge that after over 200 years, America has achieved a stable, enduring democracy in which the language of rights is a commonplace, even in the schoolyard. I have colleagues who, from the law school who visited at Yale in the early 80s, just after the charter, and they had school young children, so too young to have had any experience with the charter. And when they went to school in New Haven, they came home and they said, the kids are all the time saying, I have a right. What does it mean? Does it mean they're right? It, it was just not a locution they were familiar with, whereas, as I say, every schoolyard American kid uses it and some good sociologist will have to tell us whether in another 10 years the uh, Canadian schoolyards will sound the same. And I think it's not a trivial achievement to have accomplished that kind of culture of rights.
But how close are we to a republic that equally protects the rights of all to property, to participation, and to the basic rights that even the poorest in principle share with the wealthy? Madison's aspiration should remain a live challenge to us. And to pursue that challenge, I collected a few statistics that I want to share with you. And I, I, in case your eyes glaze over at the thought of statistics, there are really not very many of them. Um, and I want to say that although, as I, when I gathered these, although there was nothing radically new to me in them, I found it a very sobering and disturbing experience to confront them afresh. And I hope you'll be able to do that with me as you listen. So first, let's consider participation. Whether or not the cause lies in my claim of the framers' failure to take participatory democracy as an objective, a structural failure lies somewhere. Voter turnout, which is, of course, just one measure of political participation, but a key one, averaged about 45% in the 1990s. That places the United States 140th of 163 countries ranked in one study I looked at. Canada does not, much better, but not great, I should say, at 60%, ranking at 109. The UK is about 72%, Denmark 81%, Iceland 88 Italy 90 just to give you a comparative framework. Looking at all the elections since 1945, U.S. voter turnout is about 48% of the voting age population. Even leaving aside the role of race and wealth in voter turnout, whites and the well-off turnout in higher numbers, it's a troubling statement about the reality of equal participation when less than half of the voting age population votes. So now let's turn to the civil rights for which political rights were the means. Assessing America's success in meeting Madison's challenge must be done in the overall context of its successes as one of the wealthiest countries in the world. The United Nations Human Development Report of June 2000 ranks Canada as the first, they're very proud, um, and Norway and the U.S. as second and third of 174 countries in terms of life expectancy, education, and income. But although the U.S. has the second highest per capita among 18 of the richest per capita income among 18 of the richest countries, it has the highest poverty rate, followed by Ireland and the U.K., and now the main reason for this is because as they compile poverty rate, they include the prevalence of functional illiteracy, which in the U.S., according to that study, is approximately one person in five. And I'm sure I don't need to spell out to you the consequences for political, social, or economic equality of illiteracy. Now, disturbing as these figures are, the ones I found most painful were those on child poverty. And I, as you listen to these figures, I hope you'll think about the pain and shame that children in poverty endure, as well as the impact on such things as their effective access to education. So this is a uh, February 2000 report. Over 13 million children live in poverty, and the number of in the U.S. number of children living in poverty has increased by 3 million since seven, 1979. Poverty rate grew by 15% from 79 to 98, so we're not going in the right direction. 19% of children live in poverty. The poverty level is set at 13,000 for a family of three, 1998 figures. 
The U.S. poverty, child poverty rate is substantially higher, almost two to three times higher than most of the other major Western industrialized nations. And there's an inequality even within these figures, so that the child poverty rate is highest for African Americans, 37%, and Latino, 34%. And even so, by international standards, it's exceptionally high for white children, 11%. 8% of Americans' children live in extreme poverty, and perhaps, the, again, the most disturbing version of this is that 40% of American children live in or near poverty, with, that is, with families with incomes less than twice the poverty line, so below $26,000. 40% of children live in such families. Are the rights of those children to a fair chance in life to the undeniable opportunities the U.S. provides being protected? With those numbers, can we share Madison's confidence that because the rich and the poor share the basic rights of persons that we don't have to worry about their equal protection? Madison understood the systematic nature of injustice in the sense of the dangers, the vulnerabilities of rights that different structures of institutions can generate. Of course, we know now that he did not turn his mind to the systemic dangers of injustice to racialized minorities, to Aboriginal peoples, to women, or even to the poor. But what's important is that his conceptual framework, his attention to structures rather than, say, malicious intention, would have permitted him to. And in many countries in the world, Canada and South Africa, for example, Constitutional jurisprudence has tried to respond to these issues of systemic injustice. And this response takes two basic forms, which I'm just going to tell you briefly. The first is the recognition built into Canada's Charter of Rights and into South Africa's Constitution that over long years of governmental action and inaction, historic disadvantage can become entrenched in ways that are best redressed by governmental action aimed at ameliorating the conditions of the disadvantaged. Thus, the second part of Canada's equality provision provides that these equality rights do not preclude any law, program, or activity that has as its object <clears throat> the amelioration of the conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups. Thus, programs aimed at this amelioration, such as affirmative action, are not violations of the equality provisions. Now, of course, the drafters of, the, of Canada's charter and South African constitution had the American experience of legal challenges to affirmative action before them, and they wanted to make sure there was no such misunderstanding in the meaning of their equality clauses. And the idea of affirmative action is not compensation for proven past discrimination by any given entity but the need to take action prospectively in order to achieve real equality. Both these provisions and the jurisprudence that has developed make it clear, in I think a very Madisonian way, that it is in the nature of systemic injustice that no deliberate attempt to discriminate is necessary to perpetuate it. The second related form of the response to systemic disadvantage is a jurisprudence of substantive rather than formal equality. In Andrews, the first big equality case under the Charter, as one commentator put it, the Canadian Supreme Court, quote, accepted the principle that equality is not fundamentally about sameness and difference, formal equality, 
but rather about socially created, systematic, historical, and cumulative advantage and disadvantage. Part of this approach is the recognition, as Madam Justice LaRue DeBay puts it, that inequality can be perpetuated through the disparate impact of legislation on individuals and groups within the broader social, economic, and political context. And she quotes Madam Justice Wilson saying that it is only by examining the larger context that a court can determine whether differential treatment results in inequality or whether contrarywise, it would be identical treatment that would be, in the particular context, result in inequality or foster disadvantage. And Justice Goldstone of the Constitutional Court of South Africa puts it this way, we need to develop a concept of unfair discrimination which recognizes that although a society which affords each human being equal treatment on the basis of equal worth and freedom is our goal, we cannot achieve this goal by insisting upon identical treatment in all circumstances before that goal is achieved. Of course, the constitutional meaning of substantive equality is not simply a settled matter in any jurisdiction. It's a huge ongoing project. Indeed, the project of working out the meaning of substantive equality is part of an ongoing conversation among conversations among courts all over the world. But the United States courts are not part of that conversation. American equality jurisprudence has steadfastly resisted this record recent of the last 20 years or so, this recognition of systemic inequality and the need for a substantive approach to equality to respond adequately to it. While courts around the world increasingly look to each other's jurisprudence to see how other constitutional democracies are handling the complex problems of rights, American courts rarely look beyond their national boundaries. And around the issue of equality, fewer and fewer courts around the world look to the U.S. for guidance because it stands increasingly isolated in its preoccupation with formal equality. While once American jurisprudence was the model of constitutional protection of rights around the world, it is becoming increasingly marginal, particularly in the realm of equality. In my view, this is in many ways to the good for the world, as alternative approaches to constitutionalism, such as the Canadian Charter, become more widely emulated. As I argued earlier, approaches that foster a dialogue of democratic accountability rather than a rights-as-Trump's model is preferable. But the international isolation is sad for the U.S. A fuller engagement with the jurisprudence of other constitutional democracies might relieve some of the fears around substantive equality and enable courts to play a greater role in achieving Madison's ambitions. As it is, property is well protected, but the equal rights of persons and participation leave a lot to be desired. In conclusion, I think my reflections on the challenge Madison set for himself yield ironies, failures, and inspiration. Madison's brilliant insights into the vulnerability of rights in a democracy have come to be best understood in terms of an institution he rejected, judicial review of the constitutionality of laws. He himself allowed his deep commitment to finding solutions consistent with democratic values to be tainted by a hierarchy of civil and political rights. The balance we have been left with has ultimately given rise to one of the lowest participation rates in the Western world. The degree of economic, social, and effective political inequality in the U.S. today 
seriously challenges the idea of equal rights for all. But the core of Madison's insights and aspirations endure around the world. Other countries try different ways to define their deepest values in terms of rights and to find ways of protecting those rights in ways consistent with a deep commitment to democracy and equality. The best way to honor Madison is to continue to struggle as he did, to meet the challenge he set to himself, to openly evaluate the tensions between the rights of property, persons, and participation, and to join in international dialogue to imagine new and better ways of achieving genuine equality in a democracy capable of securing the rights of all. Thank you. I'm happy to take some questions. Yes. Came to favor judicial review near the end of his life. I'm wondering if these two views can be reconciled at all, or why you're right and Professor Wood is wrong. Oh, well. Uh, so does this mean I don't need to repeat the questions? Yes? We'll get them in the... Uh, okay. Um, well, let me say first that uh, I, I thought I completely agreed with Professor Wood's basic thesis last night, which is that the way to understand what might look like an inconsistency in Madison is that... What he cared about was this dilemma that I pointed to. And at the, in 1787, he thought all the threats were coming from one direction. He thought the real threat was going to be democratic injustice. At that point, he couldn't imagine uh, a powerful enough national government in the hands of the propertied to pose a threat in the other direction. And I think many of the uh, quotes, some of the quotes people most like to take from Madison from this later period about how um, about rights of, the rights of property are just parts of the rights of persons, there's some famous phrase like that, they're arising because he was really horrified to see what happened um, in the 1790s. And I think crudely put, he saw that he had underestimated the possibility of um, men of property and substance and interest in certain kinds of political power using the national government to, uh, to move it in a direction in ways we've heard that, that he thought was inimical to freedom. And, but even, it just, he thought, I think, there was a period in the, in the 90s when he, he just shifted his notion of where the real threat lay. And I think that's, that's what um, underlies these differences. Now, um, I, I can't say that I actually heard Professor Wood specifically say that he became a proponent of judicial review. Maybe I missed that. Because the, these, the elaboration of the formula that I was talking about comes from a somewhat later time. I think in the 90s, it's comments on um, Jefferson's draft for a, a constitution for Virginia. So that I think he was fairly consistent throughout 
in hoping for an institutional solution that would not simply hand over the final word to the judges. But, but only if you could find some other way of containing the inherent problem of democratic justice. So it's, it's not, I, it's not, and I, I don't think Professor Wood saw this either, um, it's not as though he just stopped be, being worried about democratic injustice, but he saw that the threats were more multiple. They weren't the, it, all coming from one direction, and he continued to try to figure out ways of, of structuring institutions that could keep that tension in balance in a way that he didn't think just handing uh, a kind of veto power, Trump power to the courts would do. Do you think it might be the American case law system and the binding force of precedent that uh, is the cause of what you say is the American court's isolation from, let's say, foreign uh, uh, jurisprudential influence? I don't. Um, all the systems that I know of um, have similar systems of, of case law and precedent. Um, and all the, whether it's Israel or South Africa or Germany, they're all explicit that the references to other jurisdictions are for guidance, for insight into the nature of the problem. They, they hold, they cannot have any binding force. Though the one thing I didn't mention is the increasing importance of international uh, law compacts that, that governments have signed and the way in which those do have the force of law, which should be then integrated into constitutional interpretation. But just leaving that aside for a moment, the, the attention to other people's jurisprudence is not blocked by the case method because others' jurisprudence is never treated as binding in any way. It's turned to when you get a hard problem like hate speech and the tensions that that poses with freedom of speech. You want to see how other democracies, which are committed to the freedom of speech and are committed to equality, are committed to non-racism, how they handled that problem. Um, and it, the article that I read recently by um, one of Canada's Supreme Court Justices, Madame LaRue DeBay, about this, notes that when re after Canada's more than one big hate speech trial, when, when a similar case came before the American Supreme Court, they didn't even bother to cite their neighbor to the north who had had a lot of experience with this problem. So the short answer is, is no. I think it's, um, you know, this you see this not just in the court, uh, but, uh, you know, if you look at a scholarly journal anywhere in the world these days, it will have citations from sources all around the world. And if you look at American scholarly journals, um, they tend to be very heavily American. So there's, there's a kind of insularity which is not peculiar to the court, but it's particularly dangerous and harmful at the moment, I think, for the court. Uh, yes, you and then. Uh, if we were to take Madison's gift at uh, mixing attention to empirical reality and theory, how would we use that to think about revising the current structure of the uh, American court system? 
Well, I, I thought about that. I thought somebody might ask me, well, what do you think we ought to do here? Um, and uh, I think it's very hard. You know, the truth is that my, my examples of Canada and South Africa are in some ways cheats, right, because they're very new. The jurisprudence is new. They have the long history of American jurisprudence before them, both what's gone wrong and what's worked well. So to, to really transform the, the structure, I don't think um, that you could substitute something like the, America, the Canadian version of judicial review for the American in the U.S. I don't think you can do it. The tradition is, is too powerful. Um, and given the tradition, suddenly trying to hand over a notwithstanding clause, um, either to the Congress or to the states, is a little unnerving. Um, not that they could probably do much worse than the current court, but... Um, The, the answer that I came up with, uh, anticipating a question like this, is, is also um, sort of utopian in the sense that this is not in the cards, um, given the current political climate. But it's not a structural impossibility in the way in which uh, a complete transformation of the nature of judicial review or the court system would be. And this is drawn from um, an example, again, from Canada. Canada has another virtue, which is that it's in constant, or I should say periodic constitutional crisis. And um, part, uh, partly because of Quebec, this has many virtues. Um, you know, very interesting for political scientists and constitutional lawyers, always something new to write about. And uh, also, it, it, non-incidentally, it keeps uh, the issues of aboriginal rights and sovereignty on the public radar in the U.S. in a way completely different from the United States. It is in the papers every day in Canada um, what the, how to recognize the national sovereignty of indigenous peoples within the context of a state like Canada. But in the last round of the constitutional crises, there was a very interesting proposal put on the table which was to create a separate charter of social and economic rights and a separate institutional body for adjudicating those rights. And part of what was interesting was that it, it took the form it did because many people who were in favor of social and economic rights um, were hostile to judicial review because judicial review is seen as anti-democratic and um, even in Canada some the, the record on, on labor law isn't so great. Um, so they were uneasy about trying to increase the status of social and economic rights by giving additional scope to the judiciary. This didn't look to many of them like an appropriate balance of the tensions between rights and democracy. And so they, um, a huge coalition of equality-seeking groups came up with a very interesting proposal called the Alternative Social Charter, and it created a tribunal of um, members of the legislature and members of basically NGOs, representatives of disadvantaged groups, who would constitute themselves a body which could both ask, pose challenges, ask for studies, and hear complaints about failures to recognize social and economic rights, and it would authorize this body 
to command the legislature in question to respond to its concerns. And there was actually an interesting structure. It really was a perfect example of my dialogue of democratic accountability because there was a sort of back and forth structure between this adjudicative tribunal and the legislature in question. In the end, the legislature will have the final word, just like it does in the charter. But it invited a way of holding legislatures accountable to values other than handing it over to the courts. And so even my examples that I've given you of South Africa and Canada in these ways, I think are not sufficiently imaginative. They don't sufficiently stick with what Madison was trying to do of trying to figure out more intrinsically democratic methods of making legislatures respond to challenges about their failure to protect rights. And such a thing, there's no structural reason why you couldn't have some, something like that in the United States as in Canada. Just as in Canada it was going to be added to the existing structure, it could be added to the existing structure here without trying to overturn 200 years of tradition around judicial review. Oh, thanks. Even as Madison was uh, formulating his ideas about the protection of property, the Continental and early U.S. Congresses were actively creating new forms of property uh, by legislating statutory entitlements in the form of land grants, uh, preemption rights, and veterans' pensions. Um, these were all benefits that required resource extraction and redistribution. I was wondering if you could comment on this um, seeming gap between political theory and action. Uh, sorry, can you just say another word about the, the gap that you see? I, I, didn't, I didn't quite get it. Uh, there was a lot of legislative activity both in the pre-U.S. and US early U.S. Congresses aimed at creating statutory entitlements, um, mm -hmm. what Charles Reich might have called new property. Uh -huh. um, even as you describe, Madison is formulating his ideas about the protection of property somewhat as if property was an exogenous given. And right. so I'm wondering if you could sort of comment on what seems to be a gap between political theory, not just of Madison's, but other people then, and, right. and sort of action. Thank you. I didn't quite get it initially. Um, well, of course, this, is, uh, this gap, by the way, I think has characterized American theory and law of property throughout the entire history of the country. Um, that there's one thing that's really going on in both the courts and the legislatures, which is um, a vast multiplicity and uh, changing rules and laws of property, um, some of which have the effect of um, rendering previous forms of property insecure or invalid, uh, and superimposed on this legal legislative reality of tremendous shifts and changes is a very static uh, invocation of the sanctity of private property. And it's one of the things that, uh, and I think it, it, continues, it continues today. Um, the, the point that I think is important and implicit in your question is that um, despite all this going on, it just did not generate in Madison a, a reflection saying, you know what, it's not just that there's a problem of protecting property, it's what is property? Who defines it? How are we going to tell what property is? And how could that be both democratically determined and sufficiently stable and secure? That's, to me, that's the real puzzle. That's what South Africa is dealing with. That's what the East Bloc is dealing with. Could you find 
uh, viable democratic means of ongoing transformations in the meaning of property that is consistent with stability and security. And of course, to some extent, every country does, we have. Um, but it's a, I think it's a real blind spot in Madison, and not just for the reasons that you give, but but the reason that I mentioned here, that the whole point of his being preoccupied with it was he knew that in practice there was no consensus about actually how property was going to be protected. That was the problem, right? People were willing to pass laws that violated property in his mind. Um, but that didn't generate for him a deep inquiry, an openness, a sort of saying, well, you know what, maybe we don't really know what property is. It did not have that form. And I think, you know, in, in fairness, my, my historian colleagues here can, can add to this, but uh, I think none of the conceptions of rights at the time invited that kind of inquiry, even though, in the same way as property, the practical issues of what freedom of religion should mean and its relationship to uh, churches and tax-exempt staff statuses of churches and all those issues. There's nothing simple or straightforward about it practically, and yet I think at the time the problem was still how to defend rights and not to see the point that I was making, that the definition of rights is intrinsic to the problem of defending rights. Uh, yes, I can. I'm sorry, I geared my eyes in that direction. Yes. Thank you. Uh, you use the word property, and I'm sure that's what Madison always used. But property is hardly meaningful today. We think of property as merely real estate. The word wealth is much more relevant, I think, in today's world. Now, the question I want to ask is, did Madison perceive, and if so, how did he deal with the possibility that wealth and political power were equivalent? Uh, thank you. Just, just a quick note on the first one. Um, while I, I share your sense that the, the nature of the threats and the problems come from the issue of wealth, <clears throat> we don't want to underestimate the liveness of the question of the meaning of property. Um, the, the cyber revolution um, is full of, I mean, there, there's just whole new volumes and journals of stuff around intellectual property. You know, do you, is, is, is a um, computer program, is that a patent? Is it for patent or for trademark? Well, actually, it turns out to be one of the few things you can get both on. And uh, it's, you know, it's a, a kind of creative mess at the moment about what is property in this new world of ours and what, are the, what do we therefore want the function of property to be and so on. So it's not, not exactly a closed uh, issue. But the one thing I, I didn't say here, uh, just because I thought it was going to muddy up the structure, is that the other half of, if, if one of the costs of the way, of the distortions in Madison's uh, very brilliant formulation, but a distorted formulation, if one was the neglect of participation as an objective, because if the focus is all on protecting rights from, the other was the interpenetration of economic and political power. And there were some of his colleagues, um, in some ways some of his more conservative colleagues, like Gouverneur Morris, who were very attentive to this, who were talking about it all the time. 
the interpenetration of economic and political power and how you could contain it. And the problem was that he didn't have very imaginative answers to that question. Um, and I think it goes back to the first question that what happened in the 90s for Madison was that he really saw that the dangers of interpenetration of economic and political power were much more real than he had thought. He thought that in a republic, you didn't have to, you weren't, the dangers were all going to come in on the other side. And so it was a, it was a neglect. And, and again, I would say it's a systemic neglect which stays with us as a failure to think that one through. I want to ask uh, I was going to ask you to join in thanking Jennifer again. We've done that, and thank you, Jennifer.